Just trust the Lord to minister to each one tonight. Colossians chapter 1, we're beginning in verse 15. Um, let me give you a little more historical context tonight before we read the scriptures. Uh, Colossus is sort of an interesting city in that fairly early in, uh, in, in history, it ceases to be. Uh, there were a series of earthquakes that, that didn't happen too long. This book is written uh, somewhere about the year uh, Paul wrote this letter, about 50 A.D., uh, and it wasn't very long after that, there were a series of very large earthquakes in this region, and people moved out of Colossa into neighboring cities, and it literally, it, not that long after this, it quit being a functioning city. So uh, that's why you don't have a lot of historical records about it, is that the people didn't die or anything, they just relocated to more stable cities that hadn't been damaged by the earthquakes, a series of them, and this city quit being, it quit, quit existing. There's some debate about where Paul writes this from. The traditional logic is that he writes it from Rome. We do know that he's in prison when he writes it. The question is, where was he in prison? The two major contenders are Ephesus and Rome. He's in prison. He doesn't say uh, in the epistles that are uh, prison epistles, of which this one was one, where he was in prison, but we believe that it was, we know that he was in prison in Rome. We think this was written during that time. But it's also possible that he was in, in prison in, uh, uh, in Ephesus during this time. The reason that Ephesus is a possibility is because of the proximity. Colossa, Ephesus, Philippi, these cities were close to each other. And they believe that uh, 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 Tychicus, who was probably the man who carried this epistle, that it would have been an easy journey for him from Ephesus to uh, Colossa. It would have been a very arduous, long journey from Rome to Colossa. And so there are those that believe that this was written during another period of incarceration that Paul was in, perhaps in Ephesus, but we don't know that for sure. We know he was in jail. We know he writes it from in jail somewhere, but that's some of the things that, that uh, people believe about that. All right, let's read beginning in verse 15. Uh, now, let me tell you about verses 15 through 20 before we read it, and you see if you can pick up on it. Uh, there's probably, there's absolutely no, uh, uh, there is no, uh, no uh, part of this letter that is more written about than verses 15 through 20. The reason for that is that verses 15 through 20 are what most people consider to be a poem written with a rhythmic, lyrical, poetic form that they believe that Paul used. Um, they believe that Paul could be in these, uh, in, in 15 through 20, in these six verses, uh, that he is repeating a existing uh, hymn, uh, a, a hymn that was written about Jesus and that Paul is using it because of its, there's not anywhere else that we know of that Paul uses a poetic form, a lyrical form where the words line up in a particular way with an A-A-B-B -B pattern. If you, if you studied poetry, you know what I'm talking about, but that, that happens here. Um, there's nowhere else that he does it. And some believe that he is writing, uh, he's using an existing hymn that was poetic and he's repeating it. The problem is that we have no existing copy of that in any other ancient literature. It's just, uh, it's just a theory, but it's an interesting. You, you hear if you can, and it's not as evident in English as it is in Greek, but see if you can pick up on the sort of the poetic form of verses 15 to 20. Paul says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's remember that uh, in verses uh, 13 and 14, at the end of that, and even in the verses that we looked at last week, there is this admonition to live a life worthy of what Christ has done for us. Uh, verses 15 and 16 are sort of the why. Why are we called to live a particular life? Is it because we fear hell? Is it because there's a rule book? Is it because of church tradition? No, Paul poses the statement that we should live a life worthy of him. And then in 15 and 16, he tells us why. And I want you to listen. In that context, I want you to hear verse 15 again. And I'm going to put the word because in there, even though it's not in the original language, it makes sense in what he's saying between 13 and 14. 13 and 14, live a life worthy of, call, of the calling of Christ Jesus. My own words, 15, because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. Now, if any of that's true, we ought to live particular lives. Amen? Uh, that's exactly what Paul is saying. In order to live a life called for in the previous verses, Paul's readers need to understand truly who Jesus is. Verse 15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Two things there. First of all, he is the image of the invisible God. Do, I think we all understand that God is not limited to a particular physical form. He appears to Abraham in a form. He, uh, he, he interacts with others during Old Testament times in a very human form. But he's not limited to that in any way. G uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 is tied to both Colossians 1.15 and 1 Corinthians 11.7, which we'll read in a moment, where God says, let us make man in our image. Uh, now, does that mean, and it does mean somewhat, but it's not limited to that, that God looks like us, you know, two ears, a nose, a mouth, right and left arms, right and left legs, split us down the middle, we're bilaterally symmetrical, we have, you know, we, we are equal on each half of us. Does that mean that's what God is? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I think we are formed in this image or in this shape. But I think when it speaks about the image of God, it's not talking about primarily the physical form of what we are, but the innate sense of, and, and I, hope you can, I hope you can stand this, there is an innate uh, sense of what God is and who God is in some of what we are. We're made in his image. 
we have incredible creative uh, abilities. We, we can, out of nothing, we can conceptualize things that, as far as we know, no other part of creation can do that. We can, we can see things, we can remember things, we can imagine things, we can take nothing and make things out of it. We, in that way, share in the image and in the creative ability of who the Father is. The, the, the sense of that uh, is that Jesus, in perfection, is the image of that. Jesus said, when you see me, you have seen the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? Watch me. You want to know what the Father's attitudes are? See what my attitudes are. When you, if you want to see the priorities of what the Father is, look at Jesus. He is the image in every way of the invisible God. Jesus went on to say in other places, I and the Father are one. A lot of our concept of the Holy Spirit comes from verses like this. I mean, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come from verses like this. Um, It's just a, a powerful picture of why it is that we are called to live particular lives because there is a Jesus who is the image of a Father. And let's think just for a second, we're going to read in this, what did Jesus do for us? What did he do for humanity? How he came and he lived and he died lived a perfect life, and then willingly laid that down. I was in the, uh, in the last of our, our sermons on real faith. There was a moment when I said both Jesus and Paul asked for miracles that they didn't get. I don't know if you remember that statement. Both Jesus and Paul asked for miracles that they didn't get. I had a number of people that asked questions about that. They were like, wow, I never thought about that. It really helps me, but it's true. Jesus in the garden gives us a picture of what we're to aspire for or to as it relates to submission to even a process that that we don't want to go through. Jesus said, look, oh, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. The, The sacrificial life of Christ, the willingness of the Father to give his Son, the love that he had for you and I, the desire that he had that none should perish, but that everybody would be saved, That's all in the image of who the Father is that Jesus represents. Jesus is not doing his own thing. He is the express image of a God that we can't see. And by the incarnation of Christ, we know who God is. If you want to know how God feels, find out how Jesus felt about things. And then the second half of verse 15 says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now there's a powerful, important theological concept here. There are those belief systems in our world that believe that Jesus was created, that he was made by the Father, the begotten of the Father, and that he is in some way less than. He's a, he's a lesser part of the Godhead because he's, he's the Son. We really don't have a, a concept in our mind or in our language where the Father is not above the Son, but the Scripture talks about equality in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our language makes it very difficult for us to understand that. But this says that he's the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Um, Jesus is preeminent. He was preexistent. He didn't come to be when the world came to be. He existed before that. He was in the Godhead. He was the firstborn of all creation. He is the preeminent part of all of that. Um, 
I, I, I reminded us that Genesis 127, man was created in his own image. Let me tell you what 1 Corinthians eleven seven says, speaking about some things in the New Testament church, but it talks about how a man shouldn't cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Uh, we represent something. And I just want you to think about the implications of that in the world that we live in as it relates to the practical lives that we live. Um, we have politicized the issue of abortion. But in every baby, in every human being, there is the image of our Father in there. And there is, a, there is that divine spark. There is life. There is that, that aspect of who we were created in God to be. And you and I, we have found so many ways to pollute that, to take, to take what God intended us to be and to diminish it through abuse of ourselves, through alcohol, through drugs, through, through abuse one to the other, through war, through famine, through disease, through sickness. We reduce this thing that God made that was wonderful and good down to just its constituent parts where life doesn't mean anything to us. But you and I carry, uh, as did Jesus, the image of our invisible God firstborn of all creation. This, a word that I used last week for this book is one that we've used before. This book is Christological. It centers on what Christ did. The whole book, we're going to read that. And in this Christological beginning of this letter to the Colossians, Paul points back to what we were before the fall and to what we have become through Christ's redemption. We were made in God's image. Husbands, your wife is made in God's image. Wives, your husband is made in God's image. They are not. Um, the, the, the homeless person at the bus stop on Washington Avenue is still made in God's image. The, the, most, the most vehement attitude that we would, or an attitude that we would most vehemently oppose is coming out of a person that in their created state, they were still made in God's image. There is value in that person, regardless of how they might try to diminish their submission to God. You and I cannot reduce human beings in any way that causes them to be less than what God intends them to be. Every individual has value. Every life has value, regardless of whether people understand that or not. It's in that, it's in that, it's in that created aspect of what the Lord does. And what's interesting is that Paul really quickly is going to transition from what was in the creation to what Christ has done for us. Now, you say, but man, I really messed up my life. Or I really, uh, I, I know someone who is really messed up. Yeah, but that's just before Christ goes to work on them. That there is this thing that Christ does that Paul is writing about, that there is no sin so deep. We're going to see that. There is no redemption too far out of reach there is no work there is no person so depraved so dark so so far that god does not want through the redemption of christ to bring that person back to where they they were created to be that's and that really gives us a real clear sense of what the church is here to do we're here to tell people that there's hope that there's a that there is a way that they can be saved they can return back to what god created them to be and that's our message 
It's this Christological beginning. Paul establishes Christ's pre-existence in reference to the rest of all creation. Christ was preeminent. Look at verse 16. Really interesting thing here. It says, For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, it's very clear in this context that when Paul writes about visible and invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, he's not referring to angelic things. He's, he's referring to fallen things, spiritual forces. What he is saying is that there is no power anywhere over which Christ doesn't rule. There is, there is no dominion. There is no kingdom. There is no throne. There is no power, whether you can see it or whether you don't see it, that Christ is not preeminent above. What does that mean to us? No weapon formed against you shall prosper. All those, everything that rises up against you will fall. That doesn't mean you'll feel like it fell, but based upon the authority of God's word, we can have faith that ultimately, watch this, the scripture says, for all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that all things feel good to those who are called according to his purpose, or everything is easy. It says that because of Christ's preeminent nature, nothing happens to us, but that God will use it for our good and for the advancement of his kingdom. Now, I don't know how he does that, and I don't really like sometimes the way he goes about doing it. I would have a better plan, but that's why he's the Lord. He's preeminent over all of creation. And when we submit our lives to him, that includes our will. There's, um, I want you to remember something here, that the context of this letter, we talked about it last week, that the reason that Paul wrote this letter, we believe, is because of false teachings that had risen up in the church at Colossae, uh, primarily about who Christ is heretical teachings about the lordship of Christ. Most people believe it came out of what became known eventually as Gnosticism. The Gnostics of that day begin to influence the church away from the deity of Jesus. And Paul takes that to task in this letter, and he says, look, everything was created by him, and if everything was created by him, he must be God. He's above all things, and if he's above all things, he must be God. He can do anything. He's all-powerful. And if he can do anything, he's all-powerful. He must be God. It's over and over this reiteration of the lordship of Jesus. Now, just think for just a moment. We haven't even dug into this very much about the implications of that for our world and for you and I. In my marriage, he's supposed to be Lord. In my work, he's supposed to be Lord. In my money, he's supposed to be Lord. In my politics, he's supposed to be Lord. In my social media posting, he's supposed to be Lord. In my car sales, he's supposed to be Lord. In my my rearing of children, he's supposed to be Lord. He's preeminent above all of creation, whether it's thrones or rulers or things you can see or invisible things. In all of creation, Christ is over all. I have no recourse. You don't have any recourse. We ought to worship him. We ought to praise him. He's over all. For by him, all things were created. Now, really interesting what if here. And there were some theologians that wrote about this in some of the different uh, reference books I looked at. This says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. It's clear in the context that he's not talking about heavenly thrones or angelic dominion or rulers. 
It's talking about evil rulers and evil authorities. And this says that all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, through him and for him. Now, this gets to be deep water very quickly. Satan exists. Demons exist. They rebelled. Uh, I, I always see that as a sort of as a linear thing. Uh, Satan was an angel. He was Lucifer. He was beautiful. He was a worshiper of God. And then by his choice, he rebelled and he became Satan. And a third of the angels did the same and they became demons. I, I, I haven't been able to find anything and I couldn't find anything today that comments about angelic free will and dominion. What I mean by that is that there are two concepts that govern humanity. We live in the environment created by two things. The expression of our free will that creates dominion. But I don't know if the angelic beings had that. They weren't the apex, and this is just my meanderings here, so don't, don't create any doctrine here. But I have gone to school for a couple of days, all right? That if angelic beings don't have free will and don't, we do know that they rule, Satan is the prince and power of this era, so he expresses dominion, even though it's false, even though he really doesn't have it. We really have dominion, but he, through the blood of Jesus, but he, he usurps it. This world was formed as it, Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and I don't think it's the angelic, or excuse me, the, the demonic forces that have formed this world into what it is. It's humanity's decisions, not Satan's decisions. We have decided what this world will be. It's our dominion and our free will that has formed this world. So does that mean the devil's a pawn? He's a He's duped. He, he is providing temptation for fallen humanity. We were the apex of God's creation, not Satan. We are the object of his redemption, not the angels. There's no hope for them. Satan didn't die on the cross for the fallen angels. So is he just a mechanism? Expressing will, but always under God's power, certainly. It's a deep theological thing that I can't, I don't believe the script. Well, the scripture says very clearly, we, we talked about it this morning. God tempts no man, but every person is tempted when he is lured away by his own desires. And those desires conceive and give birth to sin. And that sin brings forth death. That it's our own evil desires that pull us away from the things of God. In there, there is this rule, there is this room for Satan to just be not this, not this, you know, you got God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, and then sort of down under there in supernatural power, less than all of those, but there's the devil. He could be much, much less than we think him to be. The scripture says in the book of Revelation that there'll come a day when they're going to bring him out in chains and throw him before humanity, and our comment is going to be, this is the one that made the nations to tremble. We're going to see him for what he is. I think we have put him much too high. Dave? Okay. Let me repeat the question so people online can hear it. They, they've asked, 
do I think the fall of Satan was, you say, pre-creation? Uh, I don't think it was pre-creation to the world. I think it may have been pre-creation to man. Yeah. Um, can I prove that? No. But there seems to be, I think, um, and I, I don't think it happened right before man. I think that, I think we think, and listen, there are those that believe in old earth, new earth. Uh, I don't get wrapped around that. I don't know. I don't have enough information to make that decision. But I don't think there's any problem with God and the angelic beings having existed a long time before man is created and that fall takes place. Now, but there's also nothing that prohibits Adam, first of all, Adam from having lived a long time before Eve was created and Adam and Eve together living a very long time in the garden before the fall. So you've got sort of three big events, four big events if you put the creation of the world, angelic beings aren't there because it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus preeminent above all that. The world is created at some point in time in that creative, uh, before that, uh, God creates angelic beings. We don't have a record of it, it would seem. God creates a world. In the process of that, he creates Adam. Uh, Adam lives for some period of time. It's interesting to me that there, there, is no, there is no temptation of Adam alone that we have a record of. He tempts Eve later, who then, then uh, Adam is then tempted through, through Eve's disobedience. Uh, I'm not saying that Eve let, but I'm saying that uh, you know the story, all right? Um, so yeah, I think that absolutely could have, um, could have existed a long time. Uh, and the fall of, fall of the angelic beings could have been before the creation of man, yes. All right? But I'm just, I'm guessing. Someday we'll ask him, all right, which came first? Um, now listen, listen to verse 17. Uh, it says about Jesus, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now there's a really interesting word usage here. We've talked a little bit in the past. I don't expect you to remember it, but there's, but Greek verbs have a tense, just like English verbs do, but there are more of them and they have a sort of a broader meaning. And one of the tenses in Greek verbs is the perfect tense. We don't have a verb... We don't, we don't really have a, a, a singular verb tense. We don't have a way to make a word in English, a verb in English, that conveys something that happens right now and continues. If I say Dave Wooden runs, that, that, uh, that, that doesn't necessarily uh, communicate an unending, a beginning and, an, and a definite never-ending, all right? We think in the right now, all right? And, and even in that sense, runs is a verb, but, but we don't, we're not really talking about you running. We're talking about he's a runner, all right? Which he's not, all right? But, all right, he's more of a weightlifter, you know, more of a bodybuilder kind of, yes, amen. You can tell by looking at him. He's, me and him both, we do a lot of weights together, you know, and uh, Sue's more the runner, you can tell that, all right? But in the Greek, they have a perfect tense verb, that has a definite beginning and no definite ending. So it's something that is happening right now and continues. We really don't have a way to say that. Ours is either a gerund, he is running, which indicates now, uh, he will run indicates the future. We don't have one that says both. But in the Greek, the perfect tense is both. It says he started running and he'll run forever unless something says that he stops. This verb 
in 16 and 17 where it says, for by him all things were created. And there's also the, the same tense in things hold together is that tense. So that it is a action that began and it doesn't end. What's that, what does that say to us? Jesus didn't. There's this powerful truth. Jesus didn't just put things into motion and then go away. He didn't just start the world and then sort of sit out somewhere in the ethereal whatever. No, this, these verses indicate that he started it and he still, I'm going to use a, an English word and it's not a great word, he's still managing it. He's still holding it together. The creation that Christ set into motion is still under his authority. There's even a concept in chemistry, and whether you would understand it or not, there are pieces in an atom, in every atom, that we don't understand why they don't fly off into nothing. Why the electrons, all right, uh, don't, don't, why atoms hold together. There are pieces that don't seem to make sense to us, and there are things in creation that we still don't know how they function. I don't mean to make everything theological, but Jesus is still organizing this world. What does that mean to us? The moment that you think that he's forgotten about you. Are you kidding? He's holding all, not some, all of creation together of which you are part. And more than that, he died for you. So he's got this other whole redemptive plan. Christ is in charge. He's working out exactly what he intends to have happen. Verse 18, and he is the head. Now, there's a really interesting transition. Everything that has happened in 15, 16, and 17 is what theologians would call the old creation. Verse 18, we start talking about the new creation. Before we talked about what he did in the earth, now we're going to talk about what he does in the salvation of mankind. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's first over the old creation, and now he's first over the new creation. Christ is first in everything. There's just no way, understanding any of that, that we don't worship him. There's just no way that if you understand any of that, you don't submit your life to him. There's just no way, if you understand any of that, that it doesn't constrain your life in some way. There's no way to relegate Jesus to this back room of your life if you understand the things that Paul just submitted. There's no way to, to, to just halfway do it. The more that his word becomes alive in you, the more that you begin to understand who Christ is and what he's done and what he's still doing, the more exalted he becomes, the more central he becomes to your life, the more you want to worship him, the more you want to give to him, the more you want to be for him. And that's why Paul's writing this letter. Verses 19 and 20, I want to read these together. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We don't have a scale for that. In, uh, in John, the 16th chapter, speaking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus talks about what the Holy Spirit will do, third person of the Godhead, that he won't speak on his own, but he will, he will speak uh, basically what he's given to speak, and he will, he will take what is mine and make it known to you. And then Jesus says, and all that the Father has is mine. It's this same, that in Jesus dwells the fullness of God. He was fully man, and he was fully God. There is no, 
And I referred to the garden a minute ago. Let me, let me show you this picture as well. There was in Jesus a duality. Jesus wasn't unmoved by the concerns of life. There's a great uh, theological question that people, that when you read uh, scholarly books, that people have been arguing for years, and that is, was it possible for Jesus to sin? Not did he sin. We know the answer to that. Could he have? Did he have the, did he really have free will? I absolutely believe that he did. The reason that we get concerned about it is, how can you be fully God and sin? Well, but he was fully man as well. You see that duality in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus is praying, and he's contemplating what's about to transpire in his life. He knows that he's going to the cross. He can see because he's fully God. He knows what he's going to endure, but he's not outside of it. He's not God sitting out somewhere in eternity looking at this untouched by it. He's living it. Now, what does it feel like to be both at the same time? To be able to see what's coming, to know fully what's coming, and yet be living in the moment before it's happened and know that you're going to endure it. You, you and I can worry about a lot of things that may or may not happen in the future, but we can't actually feel them. We can't be in them yet. And if Jesus was fully God, he could, and fully man. And this verse says that the fullness of God dwelt in him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Once again, it's another statement of you. Want to see the Father? Look at Jesus. The Father was all there. But Jesus in the garden, he's praying, and he's under such duress. Now, watch this. He also knows about the resurrection. This is a great commentary right here on faith. We sometimes, if I just had more faith, I wouldn't worry. Well, Jesus was perfect in his faith. It, it, it wasn't even really faith. If the fullness of God dwells in him, he knows. It's not faith. It's not the substance of things hoped for. He's been in that moment. He's fully God. He knows what's going to happen, and yet he is so stressed by the humanity going to have to go through it. He's, he's, the capillaries in his skin are breaking. He's under such stress that he's bleeding in his sweat. and He's crying out, I don't want this. You can fully know God's good plan and you can fully know what God's going to do in the end and still be incredibly stressed by having to live through it. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel better. I don't have to be this untouchable, got it all figured out, get everything right, stanchion of all things. It's all right to just sometimes just be overwhelmed even in the midst of knowing what God's going to do. If Jesus could do it, if Jesus had permission to do it, so do we. Because we'll never approximate his level of faith and knowing. At the same time that the fullness of the God had dwelt in him, he was fully man. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I wish there was a way... I wish I could write a play or write a song or write a poem or write, make a movie or make a video. No one can. I don't think we'll ever even feel it until we sit in the presence of God. I wish I could every day, just for my own sake, recapture what Christ did for us, what he did for me. I wish I could live fully in the sense of that sacrifice. I wish I could 
I wished I could reach out and touch the hot stove of what I deserve and then reach out and touch what I received and feel the contrast and then live in that moment during just one day. Closest we get is through the work of the Holy Spirit. But this is what it's talking about, that Christ has, through himself, reconciled everything that was lost to himself. Everything lost in Adam's fall. And that's why you see the firstborn comment a lot. Firstborn Adam, the first man, first resurrected, all of that. That's who Jesus is. He's the first aspect of God that reconciles all of this back to the Father, bringing everything back to what the Father intended by making peace by the blood of his cross. We have crucifixes, we have crosses in churches, we have symbols of it, and because of that it becomes very familiar to us. But when you combine the suffering of the cross with the fact that it was the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in it, it puts together a unbelievable reality of what God did for us. Wasn't just, wasn't just this reduced person of the Godhead. It wasn't just, and yes, it was Jesus the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But the fullness of the Father dwelt in him. Um, I know there are those that come from a oneness background. Uh, I, think there's, I think we have more in common than we know. I think sometimes it's the semantics of, and we get wrapped around the baptism. Oh, it's you got to say the right words. I don't think we understand how that you can be three individuals and one all at the same time. Anybody that tries to boil that down to just which name you say when you baptize somebody's way oversimplifying what it really means. God dwelt fully in Jesus, and yet he was able to turn his back on Jesus while he hung on the cross and yet be fully there with him. I'm, 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 I'm at a loss. I can't, I can't get my head around that. Neither can anybody else. But in that act, God reconciled us, all of us back to himself uh, and made peace. That's, we were really in our sinful state. Well, the, the Bible says we were objects of wrath. We were engaged in a struggle with our Father who had created us to be in fellowship with him. And now because of our sin... We are now the objects of his wrath that's going to be poured out. And Christ in his death brought peace, brought all of that back together. We ought to worship him. We ought to give our lives. Verses 21, 22 and 23 together. And you who once were alienated, and here's where we were, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody, nobody was not alienated from God. Nobody still does not have a hostility in our flesh towards the things of God. Nobody gets up without the work of the Holy Spirit wanting to do what God wants them to do and being what God wants them to be. There is a hostility in us. And that's the right word. We are hostile in our minds toward God and we do evil deeds. I want us to... And I'm pretty, you know, if you drew a, if you drew a, a, a scale that for me personally, I'm, I lean towards the, towards the uh, works mentality. I just do. Grace is still hard for me to, to comprehend as it relates to my own sin. I think there's a healthy balance in there. But this thing that he says here in, in verse 21 and 22, that we are now reconciled because of Christ's death in his body 
And by his death, I don't think we can feel, I know we can't feel, the consequence of what it means to be separated from the Father and the consequence of that. One day we will, and when we do, we will fully appreciate the value of what Christ did for us. My goodness, what a moment it will be when we comprehend all that he's done. He did that in order, now get this, to present you and I holy and blameless and above reproach. Now listen, we were hostile in mind. We were willfully doing evil deeds. But because of what Christ does and what he did, we will be presented before the Father completely blameless and above reproach. There'll be no one who can bring an accusation that will stick to you and I. That's, that's amazing. And then Paul jumps over into the Roy Rhodes scale of how you ought to live your life, all right? He says, if indeed, that's true, if indeed you continue in the faith. This isn't a pray a prayer, go do whatever you want, get out of jail free kind of a deal. There is a contention for the faith. You build your faith. You walk in that faith. You, 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 you protect your mind. You protect your eyes. You protect your life. That's the, that's, the, that, that's the battle for our mind. That's what I preached about this morning. The, the battle for the mind is the real battle that's going on today. You do that stable and steadfast, not shifting. Now listen to this. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Is it possible to walk away from God? There's a question. Can you be unsaved? I think this verse absolutely says you can. You can shift away from the faith in God, the hope that you have. You become unstable. You become not steadfast. You shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard, and you shift back to a fleshly way of thinking. I believe that you can be lost by that decision. Not a single decision, but I think a lifestyle. Paul says, You've heard the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We do a lot of things. Churches, are, churches exist to express benevolence, to, to you know, endorse marriage, to bury people. I mean, there's a lot of things that preachers do. There's a lot of activities that we're involved in send missionaries around the world. The missionaries are really on the, on the point of what I wanted to say. But this idea of the message of all of this that we read, that Christ is preeminent, that he has through his life and his death and his resurrection reconciled us when we were hostile and, and with enmity between us and God, objects of wrath, it says in another place, and that Christ, through what he did, makes it possible that we might be presented to the Father blameless and above reproach. No matter what else we do, no matter what else we become, that's our, that's our message. It's good that marriage is between a man and a woman. We ought to oppose abortion. We ought to do all of those things because they're in the heart of God. But our primary, our preeminent job is to let humanity know that there is a way that they can be right with God and reconciled to him. That is our first mandate, and that's our most important job, that we let people know about the preeminence of Christ and their need for him.
Everything else is secondary to that. That's what we're here to do. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these verses of Scripture. Thank you for the time that we've had in your Word. I pray, Lord, that we would dwell upon the idea that your Word over and over. Lord, I don't know if everybody else is seeing this, but in the in the months that we've been doing this, in the years that we've been doing this, there's a constant theme. It is everywhere in your word. And it's certainly stamped indelibly everywhere in the New Testament. It's everywhere. It is, it's in every narrative. It's in every history. It's in every, it's in every psalm even. It's in the Old Testament as well, but it's so clear in the New Testament. The whole the whole volume of your word points us towards what Christ is and what he did. All of it. From Genesis with the fall through the, the, the inner workings that you engage with, the children of Israel and the, and the tribes and the lineage and the birth of Messiah. All, all of that, Father. In the ministry of Jesus on the earth. In the epistles that the apostles wrote that we might know and have filled in all of the teachings of Christ so that we might bring practical application to our lives. All of it, Father, every bit of it points us back to Jesus, who he was, what he did, how that's intended to impact us, how we should treat one another in light of that, how we should love one another in light of that. We studied in 1 John, Father, how we should love the, the, the constant, the giving of the Holy Spirit so that we might live lives worthy of what Christ did. Over and over, it's everywhere, Father. Over and over, we are pointed back to you, Jesus. Father, let that sink into the body of Christ. Let that so inundate who we are and what we do, Lord, that every day is lived in the light and in the perspective of what Christ is, who he is, and what he did for us and the appropriate reaction in us to that. I can't, I can't fathom, Lord. My faith is not sufficient, nor is my imagination broad enough to imagine what it will be like someday to fully comprehend the value of what Christ did for us. Holy Spirit, would you give me, would you give this church, would you give all of your churches supernatural empowerment that we might proclaim that in a way that captivates the heart of men and women, boys and girls. We live in a world that so desperately needs a right relationship to who you are, Jesus, and what you came to do. I think there have been many times when the body of Christ, Lord, has gotten distracted by all kinds of other things. Keep us centered on that message. Who Jesus was, the only begotten Son of God. What he came to do, redeem us. And then help us to respond to those pieces of knowledge appropriately. What's the right response? We surrender our life to you. We live our life to bring others to that same moment. And then we repeat it until we stand before you someday. Lots of other good things, Lord, you bring to our life, but let that be first in every way. We love you tonight. We thank you. Let your word live in us in Jesus' name. Amen.